Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Woven Covenant Church. My name is Wayne Park. <laughs> so um, this month of February, you're going to be hearing from your fellow uh, congregants here at Woven. And um, we've been church planting. We've been you know, planting this church now for two years and a half. And it's a good time for us to begin to develop some rhythms. And one of the things for me personally is to give myself a break from preaching. So this is not just about me taking a vacation. You know, I'm still here uh, every Sunday. Um, but it's also uh, to give our church some rhythms of rest and also give some of our people, um, give you a chance to hear from some of our people. And I've been working together with several people in this congregation to share their reframed stories. So we're still talking about faith and work. But I think what you're going to get is a, a perspective that you cannot get from me. This is a perspective from somebody in the trenches, and for the next few weeks, that's what you'll be getting. And I'll be facilitating, so I'll still be here. Um, but it truly gives me a tremendous um, rest and a break from kind of the weekend, the, the, the weekly grind every week, preparing a sermon, preaching. And it allows me to, uh, I guess, refertilize my soil, so to speak. Um, and so today, Nick is going to be the first to share his reframed story. It's going to be a little bit of testimony. It's going to be a little bit of preaching, a little bit of presentation, and he's prepared to do that. But let me tell you about Nick Ryder. Um, he's married to, let me tell you first of all about his family. Now, Nick did pretty good. I think he married up, Nick. He married Tanya. Tanya serves on our leadership team. Serves on our leadership team. That's what every good husband has to say. Um, serves on our leadership team. Tanya does, and she's a gift to our church. The whole family is a gift to our church, including Zach and Viv. Seeing them play around, um, they were in my house and and went to went to town in Zoe's room yesterday. <laughs> um, and a cat named Indy. This is interesting. They have a dog too, but Indy. Uh, it's funny. Um, Nick administers IV to his old cat. That this is a, a real doctor. Uh, with a compassion for all living beings. Professionally, he is a doctor specializing in allergy and immunology, an associate professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. He's a clinical chief of the section of immunology and allergy at Texas Children's, and he's also the training program director of the allergy and immunology department at Texas Children's. I guess you run the intern or the, the fellowship. He runs the fellowship. Um, he also teaches... I know that he lectures, he publishes, he travels. So it's cool because presentations are his wheelhouse. And I think we'll hear a good presentation today. Lastly, I just want to say to the Ryder family, they're good friends. You guys walked into Woven literally, was it two years ago? About two years ago. And at that time, we were predominantly Asian. And just to kind of talk about this a little bit, it takes a special missionary heart, I think, to walk into a place and to be among people that are different, well, we're all the same. We're not different, but actually in some ways different, you know, um, and in the process getting to see their missionary character of the Ryder family. And I think that that's a very significant thing. I'll say one last thing. Uh, Nick has good taste in beer, and he knows where the good <laughs> watering holes are. He knows what the good, um, he knows what the good, he, he knows where it's at, so... Ask him to buy you a beer if that's what you want. I don't, I don't know. Me, no. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to Nick at this time. And at the close, we'll also have a Q&A. And I'll come back up. And we'll really get to process some of this stuff. But I want to pray for my brother Nick, if you can come forward. Lord, we, we bless you. We thank you, God, for the work that you do 
in the lives of the people in this church. Lord, they go into the trenches, into the mission field, Monday to Friday, not just to redeem other souls, but to redeem the soul of their work. Lord, they know better than I what it's like to face the idols, the high places, the sins, the habitual things that, 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 that connect with their line, their vocation, and they're in the process of redeeming, breaking the bondages and the strongholds. Lord, as Nick shares his story, just as we heard last week about the Emmaus Road, let our hearts be set on fire as we hear the scriptures. As the scriptures are explained, we pray that you would bless us, that you would burn our hearts and challenge us to holy living Monday to Friday. We commit Nick to you and the Ryder family in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, sir. You got it. Thanks. You guys hear me okay out there? Great. So this is really a privilege for me. Um, you know, as Pastor shared, uh, my day job is being a doc, taking care of patients. And um, I look at this as a tremendous privilege because when your pastor turns the microphone over to you, I mean, he's taking a big risk, right? <laughs> so, so, but I do, I do appreciate it um, just to share. Um, I think it'll be a little bit unusual, but I'm excited to bring that unusual story to you. And I want to share a bit of my testimony. Uh, what I do, and then I want to talk about the Reframe course, which is a course that we went through through the end of uh, 2016 um, uh, in our woven groups. And that was, you know, we go through a lot of, of courses that, you know, if, if, we're, if we're Christians and been Christian long enough and in church long enough, we go through a, a number of different courses and, you know, bring you closer to God. But the beauty of this for me was that it really was very practical and applying it on a daily basis. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to say that I have it nailed down, but I'm here to say that I learned from that course and I benefited. And, uh, you know, the other thing that's great for me is, uh, you know, when I come to church, I feel like unskilled labor most of the time because I, I don't sing well. You definitely don't want me uh, singing while I'm up here. Um, you know, I, I can't play an instrument yet. Um, so, you know, to be able to contribute in this way is very meaningful to me. Um, uh, but one thing that I, that I do really care about is uh, children. Uh, my, my children are... You know, arguably, as, as Pastor mentioned, I definitely married up, and uh, I wouldn't be standing here before you today if not for my wife, Tanya. Uh, but my children, uh, along with my wife, are, of course, the most important things in my life. And, you know, if I can play a, a small part in improving the lives of somebody else's children, I'll be honest, that's, that's why I do what I do every day. I mean, that's what my passion and my heart is. The other thing is I'm a self-proclaimed science geek. Um, I love science, and so part of the discussion today will, will center around science. And I was saved at the age of 21. I came to Christ at the age of 21 after kind of going to church my whole life growing up, but I didn't come to, to Christ until I was 21. And you know, at 21, I was very much in the midst of trying to find myself and figure out what I was going to be when I grow up. And I haven't grown up yet, but, um, you know, and, and so I, I, I kind of, I really wanted to intertwine my faith with my work. It was really important to me. And uh, what I do is not really that important, but I think for all of us, it's, it's how we do it. So um, I felt early on that one of the most important verses in, in my walk was Colossians 3.23, and that is, you know, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as unto the Lord and not man. And so that's my goal. That's my goal every day. But so, you know, just to share a bit about what I do... Um, you know, what, I, what really drives me and excites me is bringing science to bear on the health of children. Um, has anybody heard of Oliver Sacks before? I know there's at least one neuroscientist in the room. Good. Has anybody here read any of his books or seen his movie? Yeah? 
So Oliver Sacks is a professor of neurology at NYU Medical Center, and he's famous for the story Awakenings, which was made into a movie um, where uh, he is played by Robin Williams, and uh, one of his patients was played by Robert De Niro. And um, it's a story of really the, this group of patients who was institutionalized during World War, I, World War II, and for about 20 years were really kind of locked in. They couldn't move, they couldn't express themselves, um, they, were, they were in a wheelchair, they were disabled. They were labeled disabled, uh, and there was no thinking that that would change. But Oliver Sacks, as a, a physician scientist uh, and as somebody who studied the brain chemistry, um, began to understand that there, there, were, there were probably medicines, and this came out serendipitously, that could improve the state of these patients. And so what he ended up really describing was Parkinsonism and how L-dopa or giving dopamine back to a patient who has a deficiency in dopa could relieve them from this locked-in state. And so the awakening was really born out of an understanding of science informed by serendipity that you could give a person a drug who was thought to be locked in and disabled for the rest of their lives and they would get up and walk. And so the movie is a terrific uh, depiction of the book, Awakenings, written by Oliver Sacks. But as I was learning about science and medicine and had not decided that I would be a physician or had not really kind of gone down that road yet, this really inspired me. And I said, you know, I want to be a doctor like that. I want to take the people who are thought to have disability and intervene and bring science to bear to improve their lives. And, you know, and it, you know I mean, some of that is hubris, like, I want to do this. Um, but some of it is just, you know, what if this was my child? What if this was my grandfather? What if this was my, my spouse? And so, you know, I went to med school, uh, went to, uh, uh, did, did training in internal medicine, pediatrics, did a, a fellowship in allergy immunology because I really love the immune system. Again, I'm a, I'm a science geek. And, um, you know, did all this training and, and came out a, a subspecialist. And then my first job out of fellowship was doing something completely and utterly bizarre, I went to work as a country doctor, which is really interesting because for me, I had wanted to be the GP. I wanted to go out and be the general practitioner who took care of everything, did minor surgery, delivered babies, knew everyone across the generations. And, uh, you know, I kind of prayed for that, and then I got what I prayed for. <laughs> and um, so this is actually, I don't know if you can see it, and forgive me if I'm in anybody's way. Um, this is a picture of the Clinic for Special Children, which is, uh, as you can see, on a working dairy farm. It's actually on an Amish dairy farm, and it's located in southeastern Pennsylvania. And there's a map of Pennsylvania, and the blue arrow, if you can see that, points to the star where Lancaster is. And that's where this clinic is situated. And this clinic uh, was set up by a man named Holmes Morton, uh, Dr. Morton, uh, trained at Harvard Medical School, and uh, went to Children's in Philadelphia and Johns Hopkins, and you know, really wanted to study the Amish and take care of children who had disability uh, because he had an interest similar to Dr. Sachs. He, he wanted to uh, intervene in a way that was meaningful and bring health to children. Um, and so he set up the clinic along with his wife, the Clinic for Special Children in Lancaster County, right in the middle of Amish country, so that the, the children who had needs didn't have to travel to Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or if they lived in Texas, for example, Houston, they could come to a clinic in their backyard and receive high-level subspecialty care, but at the end of the day, they were given primary care. And Dr. Morton uh, is definitely world-renowned. He's won a, a MacArthur Genius Award for his work. Um, he continues to practice today in Pennsylvania. But I was inspired by his work because he was a physician of the mold of Dr. Sachs in my hometown, basically, where I was doing residency training and fellowship training. 
And so I spent a year of my fellowship, actually almost two years of my fellowship doing research with them, which became an extended job interview, and went to work at the Clinic for Special Children where we uh, did house calls. Uh, we, we saw children in the clinic. We took care of them in the hospital. And some of these children I had absolutely no business taking care of because they had neurological syndromes, congenital heart disease, they had a, con a lot of different problems that I learned about as a generalist in my training, but I hadn't done high-level subspecialty care. But what I learned was just being there for those patients was so important. And of course, I could call in colleagues who knew more about the condition than I did. But, um, you know, that, that really led to a case that was transformative for me. And um, I want to share this with you. So it, I think you can probably see here, you, you don't have to have gone to medical school to take a look at this baby, and I hope everybody can see this, and say that there's something wrong. This baby was born in an Amish home, uh, as most are, Oops. and uh, was beet red, head to toe. And so this is a picture actually taken by a midwife. The Amish typically don't allow photos taken of themselves, but the midwife took a picture because she said, there's something really wrong here, and I need to get this child to care. And she sent it to us um, at the clinic, and uh, we went and talked to the family, met, met this child, and, and you know, uh, admitted this baby to the hospital. And what it appeared was this child had a, a problem with its immune system. And what we learned from this family is that they had, uh, they had eight other children, uh, but they had lost a child 14 years prior with what was presumed to be an inherited inability to fight off infections. And so um, within two weeks, uh, we, we used genetic sequencing. We, we did DNA microarrays where we scanned across the genome in the child and were able to basically find the gene that was broken that caused the disease in this child. And that was informed also by um, some of the public databases that were just available at the time. And so um, what I'm showing here, it doesn't show up so great, but it's basically a family pedigree and then DNA sequences uh, from within the family that told us not only where the disease gene was, but also whether there was a transplant match in the family. And so this story had a really happy ending. It was really exciting to me because it was the kind of work that I wanted to do, reading Dr. Sachs' book, uh, books, in that we, we, we had a sick child, we identified the disease based on genetic testing, which informed us of the case this child needed a bone marrow transplant to survive. We found a match in the family, and the baby was transplanted and is now about eight years old and doing well and running around an Amish farm, and you'd never know that she was ill a day in her life. Um, so this was really exciting. This was like, God, this is what I wanted to do. Thank you for this opportunity. You know, this is what it's all about. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, this type of work is exemplified not only in this case but in an excerpt uh, of an article uh, that was published in the Journal of Pediatrics by Dr. Morton, who gave an address at the 125th year anniversary of Boston Children's Hospital. They asked him to come back. And, and so this type of work, I just want to give you a flavor. Um, this this uh, essay is called Through My Window, and you can read it. It's published in 1994 in the Journal of Pediatrics. But I, I just love this story, so I want to read you just a, a bit of this. Um, it's called Through My Window, and this is Dr. Morton. As I work with the mass spectrometer in my laboratory in the clinic, I often pause to look through the window near my desk. Last summer, bluebirds, goldfinches, and a pair of nesting orioles often caught my eye. One evening in the fall after the corn was harvested, I watched six deer, a red fox, and a skunk forage through the field all at one time. On the first warm day of spring, that window was open, and I heard the calls of wild geese and stopped to watch their high northward flight. I have also watched the sun rise over the field in all seasons after long, worried nights at work because of a sick child. I especially like to watch Jake Stoltzfus and his son-in-law work the field 
with a team of mules. Jake and Sam plow, plant, and harvest with four small red mules. You may think such a contrast, the work of a doctor, analytical chemistry, biochemistry, efforts to understand how an inherited disorder enters the brain of an infant, all within 100 feet of an Amishman's field work with mules. Such contrast, you say, yet I say, but these people in their way of life have much to teach us. I have come to respect the work in the field. Jake farmed his land for 30 years, and last year his young son-in-law took over the farm. The field helped Jake and Naomi feed 12 children and gave and taught them all meaningful work. The work there also fed many generations of livestock at the same time and fed many generations of wildlife. The field was cleared more than 100 years ago. The Amish people have worked this fertile land around the clinic for 300 years with the same simple low-cost labor and intensive high-yield methods of farming. Last spring when I walked through the freshly plowed field, I felt I found a flint arrowhead and was reminded that before the Amishmen, the, wood, the woodland was harvested by another people. History and timelessness come together through my window like spring air and sunlight, like the calls of wild geese to remind me that the work here, too, takes its place in time. When Jake's mules turn at the end of a row, he often looks to see if I'm at my window and waves. We each respect each other's work. He knows I measure the usefulness of my work against the usefulness of his. He knows that I measure the success of my work, not in terms of lectures, publications, grants, or income, but in terms he understands. He has grandchildren with the disease that I study, and we hope that they, too, can live to work in the field. Um, you know, this is so impacting because what can we do to change the life of another person? What can we do in a simple, tangible way to improve the health of a child? And this is really, again, uh, the privilege that I have. And I love Luke 12:48. from uh, everyone who has given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So this, this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm going to bring this back uh, to, to uh, the reframe course but I have to tell you why we came to Texas, because it's an absurdity that we're in Texas. <laughs> and the absurdity is that, again, to underscore Pastor Wayne's point, I married up. We lived in a town that we loved, with my wife's family right down the street, effectively. My family knew the area as well. We had lots of friends, a great church. I had a good job. But at the end of the day, I had to leave the clinic for of special children um, and for, for a number of reasons and, and took a job that was, was not fulfilling God's calling in my life. And I felt an emptiness in that. And so a good friend of mine was practicing at Texas Children's and that one thing led to another. And so uh, after much thought and prayer, we left everything that sounded absolutely perfect in Pennsylvania because I felt like I really wasn't being obedient. I wasn't doing what God asked me to do. And so, um, you know, it was interesting what his pastor was sharing about, about uh, you know, Texas. And, and when I talked to him, like, Texas, it's so hot here in the summer. And, man, it's flat. There's no hills. And, you know, <laughs> this place is crowded and the traffic's terrible. And I said, yeah, I get all that. But, you know, I really came here because I feel like I was called to do something here. And praise God for my wife who, who was just like, I didn't push. And she said, yeah we need to go to Texas. We looked at a number of other places, but yeah, we need to go to Texas. 
And uh, so for me, this is, it is somewhat of an exodus coming to a land of milk and honey and coming to Texas. And the story for me is interesting in that, you know, people will say, oh, you're a doctor, you know, maybe, I, maybe you think of this, the, the pensive, intelligent-looking physician, um, you know, who, who writes prescriptions. But I, I really see what I do and what our team does like this, you know, and this is a, this is a special operations so, soldier jumping out of an airplane. Because I feel like we kind of jump into situations that we don't necessarily know what we're going to get into here at Texas Children's. Uh, we take care of children that are, um, you know, maybe not, don't have answers uh, in other places that they've been. Um, and that isn't to suggest that we're better than anyone else, but we're a team of people really focused on a mission, and that is the health and well-being of children. So my migration to Texas really uh, was born out of seeing this team working together in this way. And um, the story of medicine and uh, especially immunology in Texas begins with a boy named David. Does anybody know who this is in this picture? So it's not a great picture, um, but the boy on the right uh, is in a plastic bubble. Um, so you've all heard of the bubble boy. And the bubble boy's name is David Better. And David was cared for principally by the gentleman on the left, who is William T. Shearer, Dr. Shearer, who will celebrate his 80th birthday uh, this month and still practices at Texas Children's, although he's there about seven days a week. He's mostly involved in research. He finally gave up his practice. He was not able, actually, to get to the clinic easily from the, the research building. But Dr. Shearer took care of David, took care of David, and David was a very intelligent boy um, who only lived, unfortunately, 12 years because of a severe immune deficiency. And the sorrow here is that the family lost two David Vetters. They lost a David Vetter... Um, who lived only about five to six months, and then they lost the bubble boy, David Vetter, uh, after a bone marrow transplant um, after about 12 years of life. And so, you know, David's life was, was difficult. Um, you know, he was really, he was called the bubble boy. He was kind of a medical curiosity. He lived, of course, a very unnatural life at the time because this was 40 years ago. Um, and he, he unfortunately suffered an early death. So, you know, science has brought us now, fast forward, you know, 40 years from that time uh, to a time where babies that have the disease that David had get a heel stick and have some blood pricked from their heel, which is blotted on a filter paper, as probably all of our children had in the newborn nursery. And that's sent to a state lab. And every state except for one in the nation sends this test. And then I'm not going to do a science lesson here, I promise. I don't want to put anybody to sleep. But the, the cells of the immune system that don't work break their DNA up and then splice it back together. And some of the DNA that's broken off is a sign that those cells are very healthy and doing the job that they should do. And so those little pieces of DNA that I'm highlighting are actually extractable in the filter paper. And so from that filter paper, you can determine whether a baby's healthy from an immune standpoint or whether the baby's sick. So these new David Vetters, if you will, are detected within the first couple weeks of life, can be transplanted before they ever get sick. And again, if we brought them in here and they sat in our service, you wouldn't see them as any different. And, you know, this type of work is what I felt like I could be useful. This is, as Dr. Morton shared in his essay, meaningful work. This is meaningful work. And again, this is where I saw, God, what can I do? Again, I can't sing. <laughs> I'm not a great dancer. Um, 
but I can take care of children and bring science to the bedside. And um, so, again, what brought me to Texas was this team approach. And so what we do is we, we care for children for whom there is not an answer. And we do whole genome sequencing. We, we look at their whole genomes, and we uh, are able to oftentimes, about 60% of the time, find an answer uh, through creative science. Again, the kind of jumping out of the airplane, we're not sure what we're getting into here, that informs the way we take care of the patients. And this is just some of our data from Houston. We've called it the Houston Project um, for about 280 different families at the time we published this work, uh, where we were able to find in about 60% of them uh, either the answer, a new answer, or a way to take care of these children. So this is why I came to Houston. This is how we found our way to this city and this is ultimately, uh, we had no idea we'd find, we'd find woven, uh, how we've been blessed to find a body here that allows us to practice our Christianity. But, you know, it would be very easy for me, I wouldn't say it easy, but it would be very passive of me to be engaged in this team Monday through Friday and maybe Saturday go on a bike ride. As you guys know, I love to ride my bike. Uh, it's my mental therapy, my mental hygiene. <laughs> Um, and then come to church and, and show up and, and leave and then just forget about church throughout the rest of the week. And the reframe course, you know, really, it, it, it forced me to answer some questions. How can I sanctify? How can I make whole my work in a Christian term? And yes, I'm very thankful for the course. Um, and I'm very thankful for the time. Really, it wasn't even so much the materials that, that, we, that we studied. It was really sharing with one another in small groups and hearing other people's trials and tribulations, hearing other people's experiences, which sharpened my own internal focus. And so, you know, through really sanctifying patient care, you know, I obviously want to give my best to my patients every day. I mean, people come and see me because their child is not well. I can't have an off day. I need to give them my best. But that's not me. That's not in my own strength. That has to be, God, please use me. Use me to take care of this family and this child. Um, praying. I can't do this on my own. I need to recognize that I'm a fallible person. I need to turn my hands, my mind, the science over to God to allow it to be fruitful and take care of these children. And, of course, to operate with compassion. Like all of you, I work in an industry that's fraught with corruption, uh, challenge, inefficiencies, uh, delays, uh, things that I wish didn't occur. Um, you know, but, but to realize that, you know, somebody else is really having a bad day, and even though I may be having a bad day, I need to treat them with compassion, and that's part of my actual just working out my Christian walk with fear and trembling on a daily basis. And Philippians 2, 3 through 4 really reminds me, you know, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. Again, an external focus. And, you know, I was reminded of that again through the reframe course. You know, it's not about me. It's not about publications, grants, speaking engagements. It's about the health and well-being of a child. It's about restoring a family unit, potentially, to allow a child to be all that they can be in God's eyes. Um, so sanctification of patient care is important, and I'm struggling with that, and I want to continue to struggle with that. Um, again, science, a big part of what I do. I love it. I love, uh, I was the guy who, you know, when Ty and I were dating, <laughs> who um, she'd be like, hey, why don't we go out Friday night? And I'm like, oh, I got some biochemistry to study. <laughs> I, got some, I got some neurobiology to study. <laughs> I mean, a total geek, 
And she would come, you know, I know, you know, why don't you come have dinner you with my family? I'd be like, all right, okay, you know, I want to do that, but I, I just really want to study some more. I mean, because I do love science. I do love what other people have learned, and I do love advancing knowledge in this area. Um, but yet, you know, it's fun, but there's a, there's a way to do it right, and there's a way to do it poorly. And I want to do it correctly. I want to do it with integrity. I want to do it, again, not with a focus on myself, but what can I, how can I use this to serve a child and a family? You know, again, the reframe course, bringing this back to the purpose, to the mission, uh, to this place and time. And then really, you know, being willing to say, yeah, maybe this was my idea, but I don't really care if your name gets on the paper because as long as this helps a child, it's not about me. So really being selfless in collegiality, because as probably a lot of people here know, in academic circles, there's a lot of uh, competition to, to publish or get the grant, etc. But at the end of the day, those things will work themselves out. Put those things into God's hand. And I like this uh, Proverbs 25 too, is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but to search out a matter is the glory of kings. So I think, again, you know, forgive me if I utilize scripture um, in a way that it wasn't intended. That's not my goal. But um, what, what this verse makes me think of is that there is a right way to search out knowledge. And yet there are pieces of knowledge out there that can, you know, prevent David Vedder from ever getting sick, allow us to understand why this Amish girl is sick, tell us how to treat her, tell us how to treat uh, children from different cultures and uh, that come to Houston uh, with questions. And then, you know, as Pastor shared, thankful to have a leadership role, um, but that's also very important. And I would say that probably the reframe, reframe course probably helped me most in this area. I mean, you know, uh, of course, patient care and science are important, but, you know, in a leadership role, my colleagues come to me with problems, and, and they need to be able to do their jobs effectively. And so if I can help them, even, even if I can step into the shadows and do kind of the dirty job of orchestrating things from an organizational standpoint to allow them to do their job, you know, uh, that, that's really important. And I think that, that really was the area of my work that was most, I think, impacted uh, by, by studying through the reframe course. You know, putting others uh, first by not just labeling a problem and, and throwing up our hands, really getting to the root cause of it by not focusing on the person, but focusing on the system that's broken and fixing the system so that people can flourish. Um, and then really kind of just staying in tune with the mission. You know, why am I doing what I do? Um, it, again, it's, it's about the children. And so I like Matthew 19, uh, 28 through 30. True, I tell you, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man comes uh, on his glorious throne, you, have followed me, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, but many who are at first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So again, the leadership, being leadership in the, in the model of Christ, where it's not being at the top of the organizational chart necessarily, it's the person who will put other people first and listen to them and hear their needs. And then just to kind of uh, wrap this up, and uh, as Pastor Robin said, land this plane, um, you know, the course and even just my time here, and, and you know, we're, we're blessed that there are so many. I mean, yeah, I get to come up here and speak, but I'm so thankful that I'm not the only one, <laughs> that there are other people who will stand up and speak, and everyone here would have an amazing story to tell. So praise God that, that I've had the opportunity to share a bit of mine. But, you know, we have such an amazing body here. It's diverse. 
that's intelligent, talented. I mean, praise God for that, you know. I mean, so we really sharpen one another. And, um, you know, through the course, I really, I see that, yes, I, I, I'm not a pastor. You know, I'm not, um, a lot of things I'm not. But what I am, and whatever that is that you do, what I do is my day-to-day walk is my ministry, whether that's, you know, leading in patient care and research and science and taking care of uh, children, taking care of my colleagues. You know, but at the end of the day, it's the one-on-one interactions. And how do I respond instead of letting the fuse go? How do I respond to that person, hearing them? You know, really, what do they need? And that's the character of Christ, which, of course, again, is a daily, like, failing, learning trying to regain and regroup. Pastor's spoken about the Sabbath, which, um, you know, again, I love my work, so that's awesome, but the downside is I'll work every day. I'll work every day. I'll work seven days a week, and it's, it's great. I don't look at it as necessary. I mean, some days I'm like, oh, I wish I could do something else, but, uh, or maybe I wish I wasn't carrying the pager this weekend, but, you know, uh, but I'll work. I'll do some of my work every day because I love it, but yet, you know, as Pastor taught us, there's a holiness, there's a sanctification, there's an important part of setting time aside, a Sabbath aside, and keeping that balance, or I will burn out. I will not be effective. So, you know, I really appreciated that series on the Sabbath. It was incredibly helpful. And then really carrying this service, carrying Sunday into Monday, that was probably my hardest thing. You know, I live in Katy. I work at the med center most days. So, you know, there's 25 miles of opportunity <laughs> to do something that isn't Christ-like. Um, and, you know, you don't have to, to, to ask to know that, that, that that's happened. Um, so, you know, you come right out of this, oh, I feel good, Bobby led me in worship, I'm feeling great. Now I'm 59, you know. It's like, Bobby, speak, you know, like, I want to hear those songs again. <laughs> Take me back, you know, but it's really that, you know, again, reframing focus and carrying Sunday into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and so forth until the Sabbath comes again. So, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about what I do. Thank you for, you know, giving me an opportunity to share a bit of our testimony and even why we're here. Um, and also just to, uh, I want to thank you for, for helping me grow through the Woven Group, through the Reframe course. Um, because I, I'll tell you, the last thing I'll say is I, you know, again, being in the sciences, I'm a skeptic. You know, it's not that I'm necessarily trying to be difficult, but if you say, here's a course, let's go through a course, I'm going to be like, oh, really? Okay, you know, I've been through this before. It's really going to change me. Well, part of it is getting to stand up here. There's an accountability, like, what'd you get out of this? You know? <laughs> but that wasn't ever worked out. That was never, it wasn't like pastor said, go through this course, and at the end, I want you to, to, to talk, stand up in front of everybody. That was never discussed, never, never, ever. Um, you know, but but it, it did force me to go back and say, yeah, what did I get out of this? And, you know, what has God been doing in my life? And hopefully that's not an end. Hopefully that's just a, a beginning. So with that, I'll conclude. And uh, again, thank you all for uh, offering me the opportunity. So we're giving him some encouragement. And uh, a couple of follow-up questions that I have and in our, the balance of our time, but maybe we could Go ahead and take a seat here um, for a brief interview, if that's okay. Yes, yes sir. Yeah. So here at Woven, um, we've been learning that work is something that goes back to the Garden of Eden um, before the fall, and that work is something that is a good thing. It's not necessarily bad, or as long as it's ethical, and as long as it's done with the right perspective, it's a, it's a good thing. So the question I have for you, Nick, is um, 
If your job description were to go back to the Garden of Eden, what would it be? And I didn't prepare, Nick, with these questions because it's giving us a chance to do theology on our feet. And I want you to understand, I'm not the only theologian in this room. Every single one of you are theologians as well, not in the classical sense, but you have to figure out, what does my faith mean? And that's doing theology on your feet. So now we're putting you on the spot to do theology on your feet. (laughs) What's your job description if this were the Garden of Eden and the fall never happened? Well, it's it's an interesting question because, you know, people would say to me, you know, well, you're, you're not objective. I mean, you're getting paid to take care of children. So like, what would you do if, if children didn't get sick? And I'd be like, that'd be awesome. I would love it. I'll go find something else to do. You know, that would be fabulous if we didn't have uh, sick children in the world. I could maybe just teach science in a, in a, in a high school or something like that. Um, so, you know, before the fall, there wouldn't have been sickness or disease. Our genomes would have been perfect. There wouldn't have been any, you know, any variation that would have caused disease or illness. It probably, I assume, would have been uh, all helpful changes in the DNA. Yeah. So maybe it would have been, I mean, doctor means teacher. So maybe mm-hmm. I would have, uh, maybe I would have taught. I don't know. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is if this were the garden, you'd be a caretaker of the children in Could one be. sense. Could be. Yes. You'd be, you'd be a teacher of the people. You'd be, um, maybe even a philosopher in a sense that, that verse from Proverbs, if if you could pull that up once again, if, you could, if you're able oh, to find yeah, it. Sure. But, um, oh, that's I mean, fine. No okay, worries. Sure. But I don't, think you, I don't think you incorrectly used it, uh, incorrectly used it at all. Um, I think that's a, that's a wise reflection. It's, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. There's a sense where there's a hiddenness about the deeper things, and science is one of them. But the, it, is, it is the province of kings to search them out. And like... like uh, it was Plato who called it a philosopher king, somebody that will search out truth. So you're the caretaker of children, you're a teacher, and then the one who searches out truth. Okay, that's a pretty good job description. That's why he's the pastor. He made it sound a lot better than my answer. <laughs> I'm here just to help. I'm here just to help. Now, having said that, all of work is also touched by the fall. That's what we also believe as Christians. And um, if I can use the seven deadly sins, and I want all of you to think about this throughout the week as well. The seven deadly sins are pride, covetousness, and listen carefully, pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. How is, what is your field of work most susceptible to? And what is your field being, you know, I mean, people might think, well, he's a doctor. It's the most, you know, the most easiest thing to think about doing work is ministry. But how is your line of work susceptible and even fallen? Let me see the list again. Mm. Okay. So pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. Yeah. yeah. Those are I, the seven deadly sins. I think pride. Um, you know, I... I um, I'm often embarrassed, I'll be honest, uh, because of my profession, because I feel like as physicians, we don't always conduct ourselves in the best light. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I love my colleagues and I wouldn't change a thing about what I do, but I think, you know, there's, there, especially in academic settings, we can think we're just so smart, you know. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I just pray that God would slap me, you know. If, <laughs> I, 
you know, if, if I come across in that way, I just don't want that. Um, but I think pride is easy and, and to fall into, and I think I do fall into pride on a very regular basis, personally. Yeah. You shared a story that touched me, and is it common for Harvard and Johns Hopkins educated physicians to work in Amish country? <laughs> um, it's not common. Um, both of my colleagues, there were three of us there at the time, they were both Harvard Medical School graduates, you know. I wasn't, I'm not, um, but, but, you know, uh, but they're very, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Harvard Medical School has a reputation for, bring, for, for putting up people who think very differently. Um, so I don't think it's, it's out of character for someone from Harvard Medical School to go out and do something very unusual and do it extremely well. Um, but by the same token, uh, it's very unusual to go walk, work on an Amish farm if you graduated from Harvard Medical School, which is why I think Holmes was invited back to the 125th anniversary of Austin Children's Hospital, because yeah. he was so different. Right, and you know, connecting to this theme of pride and humility, um, that must be a very humbling, I would think, that's why I asked you, that must be almost a backwards career step and probably even subverting some of that pride even. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, know, knowing him quite well, um, there's a, for all, like for all of us, there's two edges to that sword. Um, but the one edge of the sword is definitely one of, you know, kind of saying, look, you know, what's really important to me is caring for children. And, mm. and maybe other people are really focused on other things that brings them accolades. Uh, you know, that was his focus. But, you know, saying that, I, I don't think, again, and this, this is probably a strange statement, but I, I don't think there's probably anything that I do that isn't driven by pride. I mean, I think there's always some level of satisfaction. Sure. Accolades. Do you want accolades? Yeah, of course. absolutely. Everybody does. Definitely. The question is, are we driven by them, right? Does that become Amen. the main reason? Yeah. yeah. So last question. Last question. In your profession, in your work, um, this is a question for all of you as well. What can be done to save the soul of your work? And in every profession, there are sellouts. And, you know, we say it in our circles, that's a sellout. That's, you know, this person chased ambition, chased the dollar, just was climbing higher, and sold their soul, so to speak. You, know, you guys know what I mean? You can sell your soul. What can you do to save the soul of your vocation? Yeah. I think it gets to the root exactly of what reframe is about. It's, you know, I'm not any more important nor is my profession any more important than, than any other one. Uh, it's just about daily using the tools and training uh, and giving your best in a hopefully a selfless way. I, I, think, I think that's it. I think that's it. I mean, I think the focus on others and uh, you know, improving life for other people. Uh, I hope, at least that's, that's what I think. And, and you know, I, I mean, of course, as a Christian, I believe that being Christ-like and reading the Bible uh, and learning more of God's character, implementing more of that in my life, and um, turning more of him, you know, more of myself over to him uh, is the right answer. But I also think as, if you're not a Christian, you know, there's still, there's still... Uh, you know, a very important yeah. uh, mechanism there of just, you know, again, we, we come together as a group, mm -hmm. a diverse group, 
with different beliefs and thoughts, and yet that's a beautiful thing, yeah. and that can really save the soul mm-hmm. that can, of the profession, that can uh, squash pride and uh, yeah. barriers and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like pride is the big thing, and learning to overcome the hurdle of pride in your line of work is the way to save the soul of your profession. I think it is, and I mean, neatly probably, packaged there. Well, I think if you ask ten people, you make it ten answers, but I, I do see that as a, a big one. Yeah, and I'm sure God encounters each person individually as well. And so, um, on that note, I want to um, direct all of you to think about those three questions this week. Number one, what is my job description? Going back to the Garden of Eden. Number two, how or what what uh, right, what sins, what are the seven deadly sins that my profession is most, are, is most susceptible to? And third, what can I do to save the soul, to redeem the soul of my work? So let's give Nick one more big hand because... Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It takes, it takes courage to, it takes courage to um, kind of lead out and to... S- Stick your neck out and to become a voice. And so I want to thank Nick for that. At this time, I want to give you a chance to respond and to close your eyes and to reflect on those three questions. I'll say it one last time. What is my job description going back to the Garden of Eden? What sins is my vocation most susceptible to? And last, what can I do to save the soul? of my work. Reflect on those three questions now. And so, Lord Jesus, you are not building a Sunday bedroom community here where we do work out there, wherever, downtown, and then we come back here and just kind of, you know, live leisurely lives on the weekend. Lord, you're building a holistic people here, a holistic community, a community whose faith must touch all areas of our lives and wrestling with those things. Give us light and illumination, I pray, so that we may see how we might be missional people through our lives and work. And so, Lord, at this time, uh, people are going to come forward and lay down their business cards as an act of worship. I pray that you would see that, that you would bless that, and that you would reward those who earnestly seek you. So, Lord, be glorified. In the end, may your name, not our pride, not our accolades, recognitions, or titles, may we always be about the Lord's business, which is people, creation, redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name.
This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.